what's up? Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. Today on the podcast, I have a huge treat for you. I am super, super lucky to have the chance to sit down with the funny and charismatic, entrepreneurial and motivational Dr. Andy Rourke. If you haven't discovered the content put out by Dr. Andy and his team, man, are you missing out. Dr. Andy is a practicing veterinarian. He's out of South Carolina, and he's also a world traveling speaker, an author, media personality, and the creator of the Uncharted Veterinary Conference. Dr. Andy has such a huge wealth of knowledge, not only in the science of our industry, but really importantly, in the art. I'm really excited to pick his brain today and talk about whatever comes to mind. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Andy. How's it going? It's good. It's really good. It's been a good day at the clinic. You and I get a little time to chat after the kids went to bed. It's a nice day. Well, it's so great to have you on. It's really, truly an honor. So thank you again for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Awesome. So I first want to ask about your journey into vet med. Where did you go to vet school? How did you get into practice? And what led you into the public speaking arena and building such a great online presence through blogs and vlogs and social media and overall just having a great influence amongst the veterinary community? Yeah, I went to vet school at the University of Florida. And one of the big take homes, I guess, for me is that life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. So I <laughs> I went to vet school just to be a veterinarian, and then the Veterinary Business Management Association, the VBMA, was just getting started, and I just got super amped about it, and I was just like, God, oh, this is amazing. And so it was just getting started, and it was kind of the Wild West, so I could uh, jump in and start really being involved and, and doing a lot of stuff that was exciting for me. And so that's actually really how a lot of people got to know me, was just getting started in the VBMA. I, I was the national president of that in 2006 and and uh, you just meet people and that's really right. kind of the key the key to it all is meet people and people will know you and when opportunities arise then people will call you and when you have ideas and you're working on things then you know the right people to call and so that was really how it started out in vet school and then I graduated and there were a number of summits about student debt and things like that and a lot of stuff was aimed at trying to get the input from recent graduates and so people knew me so they called me and I got invited to, you know, little gatherings and meetings and things like that. And at one of them, I met the editor, the then editor at, it was DVM News Magazine. Now it's DVM 360. And right. he, he was like, oh, you know, we, we'd really love to have some some young voices in the magazine. Would you be interested in writing? And I said, well, let me think about it. And so I went away and I thought about it. And the real challenge was like, how do you as like a first year veterinarian, how do you write stuff that doesn't sound pompous and presumptuous for people if people were like who the heck is this guy he just graduated so uh so i went and i thought and i came up with like six ideas you know stuff on like life as a new vet and sort of struggles of of kind of getting your feet under you and and stuff like that that i I thought was was solid and i thought people would enjoy and and was not me kind of talking out of my depth and so i went back i went back to the editor and I was like, listen, I'm really busy, which was not true. And <laughs> but I said, I got, I got, I, you know, I'll, I'll write something that's got to be every other month. And my idea was I would write every other month for a year. So I'd do my six ideas. 
And then I would tell him I was too busy to do another year and I would back away and no one would know that I was out of ideas and I didn't have anything left to say. That's been like eight years uh, since that happened. And I just keep keep writing stuff and doing stuff. And, you know, you write for a little while and people like what you have to say. And, you know, they they sort of they sort of vet you. Nobody comes and gives you a golden opportunity, but they will give you smaller opportunities and then watch what you do with them. So I got to write for a little bit. And then I got asked to be on a panel, and then I got asked to do a one-hour sort of lecture for a small group of recent graduates, and then I got asked to speak at a conference, and then another conference, and then it just kind of grew from there. Crazy. So how do you find the time between practicing veterinary medicine and getting out on the road to, to do these conferences and speaking engagements? You know... The biggest piece of advice I like to give to people as they look at their career is figure out how to do more of what you like and figure out how to do less of what you don't like. And so my whole career has just been figuring out what I like and how to do more of it, what I don't like and how to do less of it. And so as speaking and stuff started happening, I I was just working it around my schedule and I I was just doing all the headache stuff that you can imagine was trading days with other doctors, was begging them to cover Friday for me so I could be off, was burning my, my vacation days. Like that's how you start. You know, If you really want to do it, you, you bend what you're doing to make it work. And then at some point, I got to where I kind of hit critical capacity. And so I went back to my boss, and I was like, look, I'm on the road all the time. This is really important to me. And I had an income stream that would justify this. So I was able to say, I'm not going to work five days a week anymore. I'm going to work four days a week. Is that yeah. okay? Can we make that work for you? But that's why you've got to be business savvy too is because I see so many people who never run their side thing like a business and they're always out of time because they don't have income from the side thing that they do that they love. And so they're not able to decrease their main job and there's just only so many hours in a day. So I was really lucky, uh, and I think I set it up well, so that so that as the speaking stuff grew, as I was doing more consulting work, because I was doing consulting work for some media companies and, mm-hmm. and uh, helping them sort of target some of their marketing and, and stuff. And I was learning a ton while I was doing it, which has helped me ever since. But as I was doing that, I was generating income that then made it so that I could drop down a little bit in the clinic. And ultimately, it's kind of been striking that balance of, how much am I in the clinic? How much am I on the road? How much am I at home? You know, we're hanging out with my kids and, and, and being a dad, but also how right. much am I home figuring out what do I want to do? Do I want to make some video stuff? Do I want to do some more lecture stuff? Do I want to write some more? Because all that stuff takes time. So that, that balance, it never goes away. It's always constant of trying to strike the right life, life balance. And you'll always feel like you're a little bit off and it'll always be a tinkering process. But right. You know, that's that's where the that's where real life happens. Good. And going back to what you were mentioning about business acumen and business experience, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about your uh, your involvement with the VBMA, the Veterinary Business Management Association, which uh, I, I am very involved in at Mizzou. I was on the executive board at, during my second year, and I know the the immense value that that organization can bring to veterinary students. So I wanted to hear from your end uh, what your involvement was in the very early years. I know you were a, a pioneer of the organization, and and just what you think about it and why you think it's important for vet students to, to be involved. 
you know, I was I was a madman uh, about the VVMA. It was it was crazy. I, I still love it, just love it deeply. But yeah, so I grew up in a little town in North Carolina, and my dad was a surgeon, a general surgeon, mm-hmm. and he has the heart of a veterinarian. He was he worked on people, but he had the heart of a veterinarian. Where he it's because he he grew up um, he grew up poor in in the mountains of North Carolina, and so. You know, he he was the only one of his siblings who got to finish college and mm-hmm. and and go on and things like that. And I think giving back has always been a big deal for him. And I watched him in his practice. And as I got older, I saw him working more and more and more. And he was making less and less money. And he was you know dealing with a lot of the complexities that were happening in human medicine. And bigger groups were coming in and all of these kinds of things. And I just kind of watched him try to get his head around what what it means to be a doctor and to to run a business and when i got to vet school i just uh, i saw the vvma as this opportunity to learn these skills that my dad didn't didn't necessarily ever get and i thought aha this is how you can have it all you can do the medicine stuff you want and you can make a difference and you can give back but you have got to run a good business in the background and that's freedom. That's independence. If you really want to control your destiny, you've got to figure out the money part. Life's not all about money. That's not the the big thing. But I can only say that because I'm in a place where I have enough money. You know, right. you, you, when you're, you know, it's hard to say to somebody, life's not about money. When that person is drowning and struggling to pay the bills and you know trying to make rent, that's that doesn't that doesn't fit. So I, I just saw that and say, you know. It's really it's about independence. It's about being able to do the thing that gives you passion and that that's your purpose in in life. But in order for that to happen, you've got to have those business skills. And so that's honestly why I just kind of fell in love with this thing of man, you can do whatever you want as long as you understand how to run a, the business behind it. And so I just yeah, I just I just flew fell into it. And so I started booking speakers for Florida and and I spent our whole budget in like the first three weeks. And so wow. <laughs> I, I was ambitious and I was like, this is important. Let's get these people in here. Let's get this education going. Go crazy. Yeah, oh, totally. And so I spent all the money. Um, but I, I mean, I, I knew it was happening as it was happening. I was like, that's not a problem. I will go get more money. And the truth is, if you've got a great idea and it really helps people and it makes a difference, like especially a difference for veterinarians you can find money people will help you it's a wonderful a wonderful profession for that so that was really sort of my contribution in a lot of ways was i was the guy that came along at the beginning who said you know what guys i know how we can get money to support the thing that we're doing and I, and just and i went out and i found partners and, and people who were outside of of vet school who thought that business education was valuable and they were willing to support us as we tried to to provide it for students and we just started growing relationships and building partnerships and then we started putting on events inside the schools and we did a good job of tracking what we were doing and getting metrics and doing all the stuff that you would do in a business we were doing in the chapters and that was really it so the vbma was just took off and it was growing and the first year was 12 chapters and it was 16 and it was 20 and it was 30 and it's just blown up over a really short period of time yeah and I, i think it's it's one of the areas that i wish we would get some more uh, curriculum in during our vet school years uh, is business and, and the VBMA for right now is, is taking that place and doing a great job. So for any vet students that are out there that are listening that are not yet involved with VBMA, 
I highly encourage you to do it because, uh, like Andy said, uh, even though we did not, or most of us did not get into this profession for uh, the business aspect of it, this is a business, and uh, and having better business experience and, and skills and acumen is going to lead to, like you said, uh, a lot more freedom down the road, and and I think a happier career. So, so yeah, two thumbs up for VBMA. So uh, my next question for you is kind of a, a pretty broad question, but I know that you uh, obviously have a ton of experience with speaking with and mentoring new veterinarians. And I wanted to hear from you, what, in your opinion, don't they teach us in vet school about the real world? What do you wish you had known that you know now that you wish you had known when you were right out of school? The biggest thing I wish I knew when I came out was really how to work effectively inside a team in vet medicine because that's really where things are going. And it's where they were even when I got out of vet school. When I got out of vet school, and this was in 2008, when I got out, we um, we had been the technicians when we were in vet school. You know, we did all the treatments, we did all the stuff. And that was great. It was great learning but we were never really trained on how to integrate into a functional team. So when you have nurses, how do you use them? Honestly, how do you support them? How do you manage them? How do you lead them? How do you keep them engaged? How do you get them to want to work with you and want to help you? And how do you motivate them to, to, to support you and also to, to do what's best for the pets? And we didn't have that. And I think that there's more of that now, but I still don't, don't think it's super common. So that was the big thing that really makes or breaks you as, as a young veterinarian is when you come in, you don't have a lot of experience. I don't care who you are. Right. You don't have a ton of experience, but the people who are there can be a life raft for you. They can really, they can back you up and they can make you look good while you figure things out, or they can not back you up and they can leave you to flounder. And that's a, sure. that's a big deal. And so I wish I was better when I came out at understanding how that all worked, how to integrate with those people, how to support them, what was important to them, how I could make their job easier so that they in turn would make my job easier. I, I think that that was a huge one. I think that um, I think I, I think that I didn't know when I came out of vet school really how to communicate with pet owners as far as making recommendations they would actually mm-hmm. really listen to. And it's, again, it's really hard as a young vet that the confidence thing comes a little bit later on. And that is a big part of making these recommendations. But there are ways that we say things and the way that we set things up. I wish I had trusted myself a little bit more and said, you know what, based on what we've discussed today, this is what you need to do. And just right. said it. And and I was, you know, I, I, always, I always really wanted people to like me. And... As I went along, I learned more and more that sometimes people will love you, and there are some people who will never like you. And I think right. also, as I saw as I saw cases work well and I saw cases go bad, I realized that there are things that are more important than people just loving you. And it's it's the health of the pets that you're there to take care of. And so sometimes you have to say, "Well, I know he doesn't want to hear this." But it's my job to tell him, and I'm going to be com- kind and compassionate and empathetic. And I'm, but I'm still, I'm just going to tell him, look, this is what I'm really worried about, and I'm concerned right. that we're going to make a mistake if we do X. Right. So here's my million dollar question because I, I totally agree with you that that those, I guess, quote unquote, soft skills are super important, and at least from my own experience. 
in the clinic in the hospital over at, at Mizzou, and I'm and I'd be curious to, to hear other people's experiences at their at their respective universities, is that there's just not enough time for our clinicians and for our nurses to be focusing a lot on the communication aspect or the the management aspect of the team. So I'm wondering how how do we get that experience while we're in school? And I know that being on externships and, and being outside the hospital can be a different story, but but I'm just curious on how we can increase our exposure and 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 increase our skills uh, in those areas. Man, that's a great question. Okay, so I've thought a lot about this. So check this out. I don't know that there's much more you can do in vet school. Like mm-hmm. I remember getting my butt kicked in vet school, and I I mean I did the V. I'm not, I'm not saying don't do the VBMA stuff. The VBMA was VBMA stuff was great, and you learn a lot. But man, by the time you do some VBMA stuff and do your classes and do your studying and you keep up with the things you're supposed to be doing, there's just not enough time. And guys, you've got, you know, people talk about time management all the time. Energy management is just as important as time management. Hmm. You've got a limited amount of time when your brain functions before you need right. sleep, you know, you've got to unplug. Like you just, you can't just keep piling stuff on top. And so honestly, I think that the vet schools are pushed to capacity as far as what you can take in when you add in like VBMA stuff, extracurricular stuff that actually fits in your schedule. Could that, could what you're getting be rearranged and maybe reprioritized? Well, I, I think so, but it doesn't change the fact that the volume of content you're taking in that you're supposed to suck in and retain is enormous. And so right. I don't know that there's that much more you can do during your time in vet school other than prioritize business education, prioritize communication, prioritize the stuff that's going to make you an effective professional. Because guys, you got student loan debt and you need to pay it off, which means you need those skills, not just to practice medicine. You need those skills to take the knowledge of medicine that you have and turn it into a career. Like you have to figure out that part of the machine. So you've got this machine you've built that fixes pets and it's in your brain and it's great, there has got to be an attachment to that machine that takes that knowledge and then turns it into dollars that you can right. pay your loans with and you can put food on the table. And 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 I firmly, deeply, 100,000% believe that you can do that with integrity. So don't think that I'm like, oh, you have to you know, learn how to be sleazy. No, be, right. be, be honest, be, you know, act with integrity, act with the best interest of your patients, but act in a fiscally responsible way so that the whole system works. So you got to get that piece of machinery. So am I saying like, hey, you, you really, I don't know how much more information you can take in, so don't do this. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that vet medicine to some degree, I believe, is still very much an apprenticeship pr- profession. And mm-hmm. so, so when I get my head around it, I'm like, I just, I don't know how to wedge more into your day. I, I, I don't believe that you can. I really don't. I think everybody's probably working to maximal mental capacity. And if you're not, get involved with a VBMA or with other clubs that make you excited. So what does that mean? It means that you have to let go of this idea that when you graduate from vet school, you're a finished product. Right. Because, because you're not, and none of us are. And I think that you asked me before, what do I wish I knew when I graduated? That's a really good one. I thought I was supposed to be a veterinarian. I was a, I was technically a veterinarian, but I wasn't finished. 
you know, there's the quote about people, um, people, uh, people are works in progress who believe that they're complete, you know, and, and that's true. We all think I, I am now a veterinarian, which means everyone expects me to be the finished product and you're not, and I'm 10 years out and I'm not, I'm still not anywhere right. close to it. But, um, but I think, I think letting go of that is liberating because I think that's a big slap in the face to the imposter syndrome that's trying to tell you you're not good enough is when you say, I know I'm not, I'm not, I am not the best person in the world to be dealing with this situation. I embrace that and accept it, but I am the person who is here and I am going to figure this out and we are going to go forward and I'm going to learn from the experience and I'm going to keep my chin up and I'm going to do what I think is best. And it's the same thing with being a professional as you come out of vet school and when you're trying to figure out where you go from vet school, this is a big thing that I, that I want people to take in is yes, look for a medical mentor. But look for a communication mentor too. Look for a business mm-hmm. mentor. Look for someone who will teach you how to actually make this career work. You know, look for someone who can teach you, you know, where to draw your personal boundaries and how to have free time and how to, you know, make vet medicine fit into a healthy lifestyle. And those are all things that I look for when I'm looking for mentors, especially, you know, earlier on in my career. Right. And, and a way that I've looked at it, and I, and I forget who who taught me this or told me this or who I entered in the discussion with about a way to look at veterinary medicine is that vet med is both an art and a science. And I think a lot of times we forget about the art of it. And now that I'm in my clinical years of school and, and, and kind of staring down uh, to the end here uh, within a year and a half or a little bit less, I'm really trying to focus on developing the art of veterinary medicine because I think that's really gonna what's going to take you far. School's going to teach you the science. Um, I think it would probably should teach you the art of it, but uh, getting that experience outside of school and just working and developing how to how to to, to make it an art um, is going to set you apart and make you even more successful. So that's kind of how I, I look at it, and um, and I think a lot of that uh, could draw parallels to to what you just said. Oh, it's completely true. I mean, you learn the science in vet school, but it's completely an art. It's it's all about it's about it's about getting your staff to do what you want and support you, and it's about getting pet owners to do what you want and support you. And then all it's right. on you is to know what to do and to do the right thing, uh, right. which is still a big burden. But that is the art. And here's here's the truth of the matter. Is why I say this is an apprenticeship profession. Any art, if you're going to be good at it. It takes repetition. It takes time. There are no master painters who just picked up the brush and started painting masterpieces. It's just painting and painting and painting and being critical of what you do. Same thing here. You've got to get out. You've got to get in practice. You've got to start communicating. You've got to be open and try to improve yourself. And so many of us go in, they, we go in and we just say, this is what the thing is. And we leave and go, wow, that appointment didn't go well. Oh well, let's go to let's go to the next one. And we go on and and we just we never stop and go, okay, that didn't go well. Why? What happened? What did I do? What did she do? What did I say? What did she say? When did her body language change? When did she decide that this was a bad idea after all and decide to decline the recommended treatments? It's that level of critique of what you do. Like that's a big part of it. It's just seeing those appointment rooms, being critical. The other thing is, um, is just just practice even outside the exam room in your communication skills. So one of the best mm-hmm. things that I did was 
I joined this this group called Toastmasters International. And so Toastmasters International is, I mean, is an international organization. They have chapters like everywhere, like wherever you're listening to, to this, there's probably a Toastmasters chapter there. You can jump online, you can find it. And it's a public speaking club. And I know that sounds dorky, <laughs> but I will tell you, I don't believe there's anything better that a young veterinarian can do than Toastmasters International. I don't think you have time to do it in vet school, but you got like for me, the ones I did was always every other week, but you would go and you would go and you would do a three minute speech. Or even if you didn't have to, if you were, isn't one, even if it wasn't your turn to speak, you would go, you would see other people speak, you would critique what they did. And then they would have these drills where they would just call on you and they'd be like, hey, Seth, it's uh, spring is coming. What is your favorite part of the spring from a, your childhood? And you'd have uh-huh. like 30 seconds to think about what you're going to say. Then you have to stand up in front of this group and present to them whatever they just asked you. And guys, that sounds stressful, I know, but that's the exam room. It's you thinking on your feet right. and people saying, but this happened one time and I don't think I want to go back to using anesthesia again. And right. you have you have to take that and then you have to make a presentation and it needs to be good. And Toastmasters taught me how to do that. They taught me how to organize my thoughts, how to put them out verbally and just lay them down for people. I mean, super crazy helpful, but it takes time. You know, you, you go and you participate. And I did one that was I would do after work, and then I, I moved, and I got in with one that met at 7 a.m., and we had breakfast at a Mexican restaurant, and then I went to the clinic after that. And I just I did it for years. Yeah, I was going to say, dude, that sounds scary as hell, but I, I'm sure that was incredibly rewarding. <laughs> it is, and I, don't mean, I didn't mean to make it sound super scary, but, I mean, it is scary when you're like, oh, man, I got to go. Um, they're full of at least the ones that I was in, always full of really supportive people who were there because they want to be better. So it's not a bunch of jerks and everyone has to sort of stand up and speak. So of course they're going to be supportive. It's just, it's super duper valuable. The people are super supportive. Um, it, It is fun. It's challenging. But I tell you what, if you get that skill in the first couple of years, it will pay back dividends a thousand fold over. Right. That's great advice. That I, Awesome. Um, I, I want to pick out uh, another topic that you had, had mentioned briefly in, in, on a previous question, which is imposter syndrome. And I know that's something that most, if not every single one of us is going to experience, whether or not it's in veterinary school or out as a new grad or out as a, as a veterinarian. veterinarian. Um, so how do, you, how do you address that in yourself? What have you done uh, when you've been looking down at imposter syndrome on yourself? Oh, yeah, I haven't thought. Happens all the time. Um, there's a couple of things that, that I think about because it totally happens. Number one, the first thing to, to remember about imposter syndrome is it is a price of success. You know, uh, there's no one who's struggling, you know, to 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 do anything meaningful and can't get off the the couch. Those people are not like, oh man, I can't. You know, I. It's hard for me to pick up this remote controller for my PlayStation and get back to it. You know, everyone thinks I'm great at Call of Duty, but I don't know if I can live up to the hype. Like they don't they don't have they don't have those thoughts. They only come to people who who have some skills and have knowledge and who are successful. They struggle with feeling like a fraud, like a fraud. And so the first Mm -hmm. thing is remember that this is this is something that comes with being successful and doing things that matter. 
So that sort of seems to help me just that realization. The other thing is to just go ahead and own it and say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not the best person in the world who could be in this room. And I embrace that. I, you know, it just, it takes a lot of the weight off my shoulders and say, yep, there are internal medicine specialists that would do a better job than me. They're not here. I am here. And so right. we're going to, we're just going to do it. And that type of kind of shrugging off attitude is super healthy and it's super helpful. And it doesn't mean that you're like, I don't care. I totally care. I deeply care. But I'm not going to pretend like I'm perfect because I'm not. And that just helps me kind of get along and get over this idea. And the last part is um, I have this I have this idea. And this really helped me with the writing that I did and the speaking and stuff. Because I'm talking to people about their career and I'm talking to them about they're running their practice and things. And, and a lot of times I go, you know what? I'm not the best. Pro- I mean, I could be wrong. I could I have my experience, but what is that worth? Maybe their experience is different. I don't know. And so I struggle with that as well. And the analogy that really helped me is, is I believe that we're all on a journey and we're all on the path. And we are at different places on the path, depending on what the subject is. I'm not saying I know everything, but I'm saying I have walked down this path and I know a fair amount of stuff and I am still continuing on the path and I continue to learn. And I just, I reject the idea that I'm better than you or smarter than you, but I can look at you and say, I've been on this journey. Let me share with you some things that I have come to believe or things that I know to be true. And then if you say, oh, that's great. Let me share with you some things from my path. I will say, yes, please do. But the idea is not that I am the sage and I know everything. I am on the journey and I know some stuff and I'm learning more stuff. And I'm happy to share with you the stuff that I know. And for right. whatever reason, that mindset really, that seems to help me is I reject the idea that I am the expert. I am another guy on the path and I have had a good path and I've made some mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've probably made more mistakes than most people, which is why I have good <laughs> stories to tell uh, because I have, I have failed many different ways and that helps, that helps me advise people. Right. Well, if you're not failing, I don't think you're doing, you're not growing. I, I, I look at failure as a good thing sometimes that, uh, you know, you fail at, at new things, but that's how you're going to learn the best. So failing sucks and it hurts and it's embarrassing, but it's got to happen, I think. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. The, the trick to it is to fail small. Like, that's right. really it, is fail often. Like, I, I, say I, I screw stuff up all the time. But it's generally small stuff, and I tend to I tend to be calculating in how I do things, and I don't take big risks. And you know, I remember the stakes. Fail small. Don't like throw your whole career into this wild idea, but don't be afraid also to try something one Saturday morning or one Monday morning and say, you know what, I think we're going to try this procedure. I've read about it. I'm prepared for it. Let's let's do this this one time super controlled conditions. Let's see how it goes and what we learn. And so, you know, take small risks, take controlled risks, but never stop taking risks and never stop pushing yourself and growing. I see, you know, that's, that's death in your career is when you're like, yep, I got this figured out and I'm done and I'm going to stay safe and only do the things that I know. Well, that's, that's why you meet veterinarians that haven't updated their pain management protocols in 10 years. Yeah. That's not the vet you want to be. 
And that sounds like a great way to get burnt out too. If you're doing the same thing over and over, you're getting bored and you're done. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, I mean, that stuff will make you crazy. It's just, oh man, <laughs> people think that, um, that angry clients will burn you out and, and they, they're, they're hard, but I see more people burn out from doing the flea talk. 15 right. <laughs> times a day, every day, and never mixing it up and never sort of finding a deeper meaning in what they're, in what they're doing. So yeah, oh, that right. type of monotony will, I, that's the greatest thing about vet medicine though, is that you can continue to grow and evolve. I mean, you could just get out of bed. I could get out of bed. 10 years out of vet school, I can get out of bed and just say, you know what? I want to take my dental game to the next level. And by the end of the year, I could have 40 hours of CE hands-on, you know, I, I mean, we could get, get a dental, you know, dental training in the clinic. There's a million things I can do and ways I can do it. All it takes is me deciding, you know what, I want to be better at this. And the same right. thing, I can do it for behavior and I can do it for emergency and critical care. I can start taking emergency shifts at the emergency clinic if I want to. That's great. My license works. It's good for that. If I decide I want to stay up overnight, I can totally do that. Or if I want to do emergency stuff on the weekend, like that's what I'm talking about. Failing small is like, I don't have to say, Hey, I'm going to quit my job and go be emergency vet. I can take some emergency shifts on the weekend. And if I love it, then that may be where we go. But gosh, vet medicine lets you do these things of like just this little experimental thing. And, and, you know, we talked before about like, like side jobs and kind of side projects and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. like, dude, that keeps you fresh and, and you can just pick that stuff up. I was talking to someone who, I mean, she's super passionate about um, making educational resources available to Japanese speaking veterinarians who don't have access wow. to those resources now. Yeah. And so it's like her thing. And she's got this Facebook group and it's all in Japanese and she's just taking materials that we have and translating and helping to bring this knowledge across to these other people. It's just like, that's just her thing. And I like, I never even knew that was a thing, obviously, yeah. until I met her. But it's her thing. And like, man, that type of guiding light, like that keeps you fresh and it keeps you motivated. And I really feel like um, if you're a vet, and, and not in vet school. In vet school, you're learning so many things. Like, just keep exploring and finding what you're going to do. But even later in your career, you, what is your guiding light? Like, where are you going? And I think a lot of times people get this idea that like you're supposed to know what kind of vet you're supposed to be. And I think we get that because you're in vet school and you're looking at the professors who have, you know, who've gotten bored in their specialty and they're like, I knew I wanted to be a neurologist ever since I was seven years old. And you're like, I'm supposed to know what kind of vet I'm going to be and what my specialty is going to be. And I thought that and it stressed me out. And I got to tell you, that's the one thing I wish I did not believe. It's you don't have to know what you're doing. Just put one foot in front of the other and keep going and do more of what you like and do less of what you don't like and never stop doing that. Right. And always remember that you can change course later on and you can spend all your time learning surgery and dentistry and then go, you know what? I'm done with this. I just want to see appointments and snuggle puppies and kittens, you know, like, and then you can stop doing surgery. Like, that's a thing that you can do. But people don't realize that they're allowed. Like, oh, I have to do that. No, you don't. It's amazing. 
Terrific. So my last question for you is going back to the journey you speak of, which I, I love that analogy. And for those of us that are following down that journey and, and onto the path towards graduation and finding that first job, what do you think are the, the keys to finding that right first job? I know that for the, the, the vast majority of us, that our first job will not be the last. Um, but how can you be sure that 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 first job you find is going to be a right fit for you. I don't think there's any way to know that that job is going to be the right fit for you. I think there's a couple of things you can do to increase the probability. And but but here's the thing, it really depends on your life circumstance. So if you're someone and your spouse has a job lined up in a small town in Illinois you're kind of fishing in a small pond. You know, you're going to go with your spouse, presumably, and you're like, hey, we may not be here forever, but I kind of need to find a job in this small town. That's different than if you are not married and you're like, I'll go anywhere. And you can literally look at the whole country. You can look at Canada. You look at, you know, look at the UK, for God's sake. You look at anything. You have that freedom. Well, then it's just, you know, you have such a wide net. So I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but we all have different realities in how we find those jobs. And so you can't, you can't blow that stuff off. You know, sometimes we have certain parameters we have to work in. So don't let that be a crippling thing or something that, 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 that brings you down because you're like, I'm never going to find the perfect job because I have to go to this area. The perfect job is in the eye of the beholder. And so the more that you know about yourself and kind of what you want and where you're trying to go, the, the better off you'll be. But even then you still won't know what you should do. I mean, you do your best and you try to pick a spot that, that sort of matches with you. But but let me let me illustrate my point. I did a survey a couple of years ago and I surveyed on Facebook all of the veterinarians that were there and I said, hey guys, I have two questions. Only two, only answer these two. They wrote a bunch of other stuff. But I was like, stop it, just, just answer these two questions. <laughs> Number one, did you do an internship after you graduated from vet school? Yes or no? That's question one. Question two was, are you happy with the decision that you made? Yes or no. You know what I found? <clears throat> I found that 98% of the people who do who did internships were happy that they did internships. And 96% of the people who went straight into practice were happy that they went straight into practice. Isn't, isn't that great? Isn't that liberating? The take-home, yeah. the take-home point is you're probably going to be happy. Um, yeah, I think people beat themselves to death going, should I do this? Should I not do it? There's benefits and there's drawbacks to whichever one, but whichever one you choose to do, that will be your life. And you will probably look back and say, that was the decision that I made and I wouldn't change that decision. And so, so that's a beautiful thing that takes a lot of stress and pressure off your shoulders. The other thing that takes stress and pressure off your shoulders is to say, go and find that first job. Look for a place that's going to support you. Look for a place where you'll be, you know, you'll be around other doctors or you'll have a one doctor that's going to be there a lot. Remember sort of the apprenticeship idea of practice. But are you going to get to see a lot of cases? That's important. Are you going to practice a standard of care that you're happy with? That's important. Are you going to feel supported? That's important. Those are really the three things for me that matter in your first job. I want to see a lot of cases. I want to... You know, I want to have someone there who I can bounce ideas off and who can help teach me and and mentor me. And I I want to feel supported. I don't want to feel left alone and abandoned. And like those are those are my three things. And I feel like you can get that in 
middle of nowhere Illinois, and I think you can get it in New York City. And honestly, guys, I know people who went to huge hospitals and had crappy experiences, and they're like, I want to get out of here. I know people who went to tiny hospitals and were like, this is great. And I know people who went to huge hospitals and said, this is wonderful. I know a lot of people, like myself, who went to a huge hospital. They had 28 vets. It was all general practice. I saw appointments from 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. It was all, I mean, 28 vets there. Great mentors. I got, saw tons of cases. I got lots of help, lots of supervision. But after two years, I was time to go. And, uh, you know, I just, it was just time to go. I was living in a city that was bigger than the city that I really wanted to live in. And, you know, it was stressful. And, 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 you know, just getting your schedule right when you got 28 vets is hard. And it's just stuff. It's just life stuff. And so I was like, hey, guys, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to re up next year. And they were like, oh, man, that's, that's sad. Oh, well, you know, take care of yourself. Come back and visit us whenever you want. And that was it. And like, huh. that's, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's like that. It doesn't have to be this terrible thing. I think that a lot of us, again, like we have this problem of saying, okay, I am making a one year commitment and nothing more than that. And I'm going to go and I'm going to commit, uh, commit myself. And then I'm going to see how things are. And maybe I'll do another year commitment and maybe I won't. And maybe they won't want me to come back for another year. That's a thing that happens too. Right. So I, I, I think that the young vets feel this pressure of, I need to know exactly what I, what I want to do with my life. I want to know what my specialty will be, whether I do a residency or not. I want to know where I'm going to be, and I want to find a practice where I will be forever. And guys, that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Like, like I just never seen it click into, into place like that. But that's what I wanted. And I felt like a failure when it didn't happen. And so I just wanted to try to lift that off of people's shoulders and say, it's not going to happen. You're going to go somewhere for a year and it'll be great or it'll be hard or it will be somewhere in the middle. And most likely there'll be things that are great and things that are hard and you'll stay for a second year or you won't, or you'll stay for five years or you won't. But that does not make you a failure. If you go for a year and say, this isn't right for me. I want something else. Remember, do more of what you like, do less of what you don't like. And sometimes that means leaving. And, you know, it's just, um, it really is just not putting any more pressure on yourself than you have to, I guess. That's awesome. Cool. I think that's a great place to leave it because, I mean, so many great pieces of advice and a lot of reassuring words from you. So so thanks for that and, and for being so candid and, and for saying some things that I think every vet student needs to hear and it does not hurt to hear it over and over again. So, uh, so thank you again so much for your time, Andy, and, uh, hope you had fun. This was a lot of fun for me and I hope you guys listen out there, uh, had fun listening too. So, so once more, thank you very much, Andy. Thanks a lot. Terrific. One more huge thank you to Dr. Andy Work for hanging out with me today and giving some always awesome advice. Please get on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube and find Dr. Andy right now if you haven't already at Dr. Andy Rourke. Also be sure to check out his website and blog at www.drandyrourke.com for tons of great blog articles, videos, and educational materials. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. For resources and more information about the podcast, please be sure to check us out at www.vetschoolunleashed.com or find me on Instagram at SethTheAlmostVet and also on Facebook. You can also connect with me via email 
at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's podcast and would love to hear any suggestions or topics that you'd want to hear us talk about. Even reach out to me if you want to be on the podcast yourself and share some insight of your own. And of course, if you do feel so inclined, please don't hesitate to leave us a review on iTunes and be sure to subscribe. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM.